Welcome to Our Data, a podcast about the public's interest in the era of big data. We explore the contours of the public's interest in the landscape of emerging database technologies. Blockchain, AI, big data, and the Internet of Things are pushing the boundaries of our imagination while challenging the ability of policymakers to respond appropriately and effectively. Join us as we talk to leading edge thinkers and doers engaged in the design, development, and regulation of these transformative database technologies with a sharp focus on how they impact the common good. All right, uh, we are really excited um, and, and frankly honored to have a special guest today uh, to talk about a number of issues that are really timely and important. Um, really looking forward to the discussion. Today's guest, Steve Phillips, is the host of Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast on politics. He's also the founder of Democracy in Color. He is a regular opinion contributor to the New York Times and a columnist for The Nation. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Brown is the New White. Uh, he's also a friend and somebody, uh, I, I, like I said, it's going to be a great show. I'm really looking forward to the to the discussion. Um, generally speaking, for this show, I'm, I'm interested in digging into the idea that data is neutral, that uh, database technologies by extension are neutral, um, and kind of look at governing and politics in that context. You know, how data is used to create, justify, and maintain inequality, particularly racial inequality, and get into things about what could and should be done about it. Uh, so without any further ado, Steve, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Uh, Ruben and I are really excited. Um, and I want to turn it to you and say, you know, what kind of things, when you think about data and policy and politics, what comes to mind and what would you like our folks to, to, um, to focus in on? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Excited that you guys are doing the pod and that, uh, appreciate being invited on <clears throat> and, uh, just to, to uh, give some context and history for the guests in terms of the conversations. I think, we, uh, well, A, uh, not, well, to date myself, but Mike is a year older than I am. So <laughs> it's to date both of us. So we have come a long way, I think, in terms of talking about technology and data from, uh, I know I brought a typewriter to college. And that yeah. They, invented the Macintosh when we were in college. They did. And actually, I took a class at Stanford in 1990. I never forget this. Uh, it was like a grad student says, you should buy the Mac Plus because this is going to be the standard for the next 10 years. So, Yes, I remember the saving on a 128K floppy That's right. term paper. Yeah, and it was yeah. impressive. Yeah. So now it's all, the, all the kids are like, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I'm excited to be here. So I, I was trying to think about the different, the overlaps of like where data comes in and that. So, you know, my role might work in politics and trying to deal in that space. And it, it also do a lot kind of like with money and politics and donors and politics. And so one of the things that's been fascinating to me and maddening to me is how data free much political decision is and much political analysis is. Uh -huh. And so in the, the second edition of my book, or would it before the 2016 election, they did a second edition after to kind of sum up what had happened, et cetera. And I have a appendix that says math, not myth. And uh -huh. there's just a tremendous amount of narrative about what actually happened in 20, 
16, which is divorced from the actual data, right? So this, the narrative is that there are all these people who had voted for Obama, who then switched their uh, allegiances and went over and voted for Trump. And the so Obama Trump voter, the mythical exactly. Obama Trump voter. Yes. So the media, let's say they, they, any diner they can find to find the Obama <laughs> Trump voter and be able to the actually I wound up going to uh, Cory Booker, who another Stanford person, um, invited me to speak to the all the Democratic senators. They have a dem, uh-huh. they have a retreat every uh, two years, uh-huh. and so after in 2017 they had a retreat in West Virginia, and the whole uh, Cory wanted me to come talk about to dispel this myth of the Obama Trump voter. And they had this whole panel. The whole thrust was to have these West Virginians who had been Obama Trump voters try to explain to them. So then get to data. Obama lost West Virginia by 30 points. And yet there's this presumption that somehow these voters, that's what had this critical piece. And so yeah. that's like that whole one piece. But more fundamentally, and this is out here, like New York Times has talked about this. There's this, there's this it's been repeated regularly that there were 9 million people who voted for Obama who switched to Trump. And that's out there. You see the New York Times, you see et cetera. All now, Clinton, Obama got 65 million votes, 65.6. Clinton got like 65 million point three. So she basically mm-hmm. got the exact same number of votes as, right. as uh, Obama did. Right. So if we lost 9 million votes... How did Clinton get the exact same number of votes <laughs> as Obama did? But that's about math, the math. Right. That's math and myth. And so the myth is that now that it's taken as an article of faith mm-hmm. without people actually analyzing um, the underlying data and the underlying facts, right? They say, oh, like Wisconsin. I think so Wisconsin could be this key state. And all these people switched from uh, Democrat. Trump got fewer voters in Wisconsin than Romney did four years earlier. So again, wow. if there's all this huge right. surge, and so that's kind of been one of the, I think it's millions of, it's not just millions of dollars, millions of dollars in the public policies have been uh, advanced or held back based upon this assessment around what is going on at the electorate, how people, what actually happened in 2016 as well. So that I think is one of the more dominant realities around data and its importance, but it's also its absence from the really the most fundamental task we have, which is choosing the leader of this country. Well, so, but, but what you always hear is this, the political consultants and the political, you know, the, the ones driving elections and decision-making are relentlessly looking at polls, relentlessly testing things and relentlessly making things, decisions based on this data. So who are these folks and why is it that despite having all this money that they put into that, what, like, how do you, go, go be, take us behind the curtain. What, what happens? Because this is not, this is not, um, I mean, this is a, allegedly, this is like they have, you know, huge databases and all sorts of the stuff that they should have to make these decisions. And you're saying not so much. Not so much at all. Right? So my favorite story it's not favorite, it's most maddening, but it's most compelling story <laughs> from 2018. So, uh, uh, you know, a progressive Bay Area donor contacted us and said they wanted to move, you know, significant, you know, mid six figure amount of money to try to flip a congressional district. 
And, but they wanted to do it in a way that worked with community-based organizations. So it wasn't just TV ads. So you helped to strengthen the group and some infrastructure. That's something you'd leave behind after the election. Okay, right. So we had done all this deep dive analysis, right? It's actually one of our other mutual friends, Dr. Julie Martinez Ortega, mm-hmm. um, went on to actually become a PhD and uh, you know data expert and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And um, so she was she was the principal researcher for my book, and so I worked with her on a lot of different stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me. So she had worked on developing this analysis of all the congressional districts, the ones to figure out which ones were most winnable. Okay. Looking at how close the margin had been, and then looking at the uh, population composition, and then the non-voting members of that district and what the composition of those was. So if you increase turnout, you know, what's underappreciated, people are afraid to talk about, is the, probably the single most relevant variable around people's voting uh, partisan inclination is the racial background. Right? Uh-huh. You have 90% of African Americans voting Democratic and 55 to 60% of whites always voting Republican. I mean, that's uh-huh. a very pertinent data point, right? but people don't look at it. So anyway, we had done this analysis of all these different districts. And so there was a district in California, California 21, in the Central Valley, that was majority Latino and was... Um, it was uh, the Democrats had lost by like 14,000 votes. And there was like a hundred thousand Latinos who didn't vote in that district. And Latinos in California are two thirds democratic. So I said, like, that's a great district. Go in there. There's a group uh, communities for new California come out. They came out of the, the United farm workers, Cesar Chavez tradition. And then, you know, and have a whole slew of community based people who do door knocking and phone banking and try to increase turnout of the voters you need. So they went to the Democratic Super PAC, uh, this donor did, and said, I want to do California 21. There's this analysis So behind the curtain. So they were told, well, that's not a good district to focus on. Um, first they said, there's a lot of Latinos in that district, and Latinos don't vote in midterm elections. So let's find a different district. Actually. Wow. So that, that was that piece. And then they were saying, <laughs> they said, our polling shows that's not a favorable district. Uh-huh. So I polling. told them, ask for the poll. Yeah. Who are they polling? It's a majority yeah. Latino district. Yeah. Latinos are two, uh, are, are 60, you know, 6% democratic. So you have to, your polling sample has to be very non-reflective in order to arrive at an unfavorable reality. So that's the behind the scenes part, but we've pushed them, we've yeah. got them to you know, go ahead and do that district. They moved, uh, got other donors in, moved like a million dollars, communities for New California, knocked on doors, made phone calls, targeted 30,000 infrequent uh, Latino voters. We won that district by 800 votes. Wow. That's this is the one story. that you shouldn't, even, you shouldn't even be thinking about. Exactly. So and I that's one of, the, go ahead. one of the interesting things about, about that story is that I think it really illustrates the power of data and it illustrates the two things that data can do. Data can, and they were both in that little anecdote, data can support a conclusion and data can be used to disprove a conclusion. Yeah. Um, so if we go back just a second to something like the 2016 election, um, the data clearly doesn't support this myth of the Obama-Trump voter. But what does the data show? 
or it's possible that you know it, it's inconclusive and we just don't have enough to really put together a full picture. But is there is there anything there where we can start to draw conclusions and look at the part of data that supports a certain conclusion rather than disproving something? Yes. So, although it you know again, it's if it if people aren't following the data, it's like does it really even matter to a certain right. extent? Uh huh. Uh huh. So yes. It was like necessary the, but not sufficient. Right. I was on the uh, school board in the '90s, and we were trying to change the curriculum, which is drawing upon what we had done at Stanford. And we won this reform, which was, it was a compromise, but it was significantly better than it was. But the headlines were blaring and we had done all this stuff and it was revolutionary. I remember telling somebody, I was like, the media is so powerful in this country that even if you lose and the media says you won, you won, right? (laughs) And so there's some level of that in terms of what does it even matter? Because I say that to say, I don't, people have not been functioning from a public policy standpoint, in terms of what they prioritize, in terms of who they're targeting, based upon the data. So there's two fundamental things that happened in 2016 that the data shows. First is there was a, you know, from my standpoint, the Democrat cataclysmic drop in African American voter turnout. Uh-huh. And so you can see the Pew, uh, uh, the Pew Research has these charts they show based on the census data, and you see. African-American turnout as a percentage of all eligible voters going up from 2000, 2008, 2012, 2012, African-American turnout rate exceeded the white turnout rate for the first time. Wow. In 2016, you can see it in the chart. It drops dramatically. It drops all the way down below the 2004 uh, turnout numbers. And so then you take that and then all this talk about, you know, the, the, you know, white, working class voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and how critical they were. Equally, if not more important, were Detroit, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, and African-American voters, and the drop-off there. Right. So that was a, so if you had had black turnout at a similar enthusiastic level, that would have been able to have the turnout to actually uh, uh, prevent Trump from winning the election. And then there's a lot of implications then in terms of who are you targeting and what types of policies do you put forward and who are you trying to inspire right. going forward? So that's one uh-huh. reality. The I other, mean, that one, that one, Steve, is like, that. can I just, I, just because uh, yes and on that, I mean, the dominant narrative was absolutely three states, 77,000 votes, and look at those states, white working class, former auto worker, white dude in his 50s or 60s. That was yep. kind of the image right. that was put up and right. not talking about Detroit, Milwaukee, right. like these core. And it's like it, when you put it out like that, it's so obvious. It should be, I mean, it's almost mal, uh, journalistic malpractice. Right, I mean, journalistic it, it, and then political and then public policy. So what uh, policy agenda are you pursuing? Because who are you afraid of and who are you trying to inspire? Is it, is it the white working class who, you, who has won the narrative battle or is it the decline in the African-American voters who are uninspired and uh, unattended to? So that's one major reality of what actually happened in 2016. The other is the, and this has gotten like no attention, but I think it's even potentially mathematically even more important. Uh-huh. The third and fourth party vote is that you had uh-huh. this historic increase in third and fourth party votes, so Jill Stein and um, Gary Johnson, I call the Johnstein oh. voters, that vote up went up tremendously, in particularly in Michigan, Wisconsin, in uh, and Pennsylvania. Interesting. And so this—that's what happened in Wisconsin. Trump's oh. vote dropped 
the Republican vote decreased wow. from 12 to 16. But the Democratic vote decreased more. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. As people said, oh, it's fine. Clinton's got it. I'll just vote. Uh, I don't like Hillary, whatever. I'll do a protest vote for Stein. The increase in vote for Jill Stein between 2012 and 2016, just the increase, more people voted for her in 16 and voted for 12. That number was larger than the margin of difference in both Wisconsin and Michigan. Wow. Um, that that certainly has been lost on any kind of... I've, I, I, I may, if I've heard of it, it's probably because of something you've written, Steve. Right. So, after, so then are we trying to get back the conservative white working class person who has all this racial resentment? Are we trying to get back the Jill Stein voter who thought that right. Democrats right. were not progressive or radical enough? So, right. so where, where is the friction here? Because as you're, as you're laying out this data, one thing that really strikes me is that um, this idea that the, the election turned on the white working class American it's a narrative that's been perpetuated not across the political spectrum by basically everybody in the media. And it seems like there should be uh, some outlets that have a, a huge incentive to actually look into this data and say, this is what's going on. There's a, a disinformation incentive from one side and there's a, an, an incentive to get the right information out there from the other side. So why aren't they doing that? Well, I think that's where you get the impact of I mean, you see, that's where you see how strong implicit bias is and how strong the deference is right. to the worldview that, that uh, white voters are the most important voters. So what was it? The, which was it? The progress? There was a, one of these pro- white progressive uh, magazines did a special issue like six weeks after the election, 2016. So it wasn't like uh-huh. they had a lot of time to, but it's like, and it was the entire piece was about winning back the white working class. Uh-huh, so the extent uh-huh. to which they were ready and predisposed and focused around how do we go? And they had like 13, 14 articles in there uh-huh. around how. So their orientation, it almost it felt to me like they were kind of like tolerating the Obama things. Like, well, okay, we have this Obama and this multiracial thing. But at the second that this, there's a different outcome, they just rushed in. And that was really why I wrote my book was that. I thought it was obvious, right? I mean, Mike and I came with age in yeah. Jesse Jackson's campaigns yeah. and multiracial politics, and you could see the trend. It was very yeah. obvious what was happening to us. But then after Obama's reelection, people were kind of like reverting back to the old type of politics. Like, well, that was a one-off, and Obama, you know, we'll never see that again. So we have to go back and get the right working class. It's another data point. Obama, I went back and reconfirmed this recently. Obama would not have beaten Reagan. So people see it as, the, as this, you know, he was the singular figure and we'll never see that again. It was all very personality driven. But his coalition Interesting. was 80% people of color, of people of color. And uh, in his um, reelection, 39% of whites. If you take those percentages and you apply them to the 1984 electorate, Obama would have lost but the country had gotten that much more diverse by 2008. So that coalition could, so it was much more about the coalition than about the individuals, but the mindset remains. And that that's a question about, but who's in positions of power, which is kind of what we're seeing in this reckoning now in this black and the black lives matter moment is that which voices do you listen to? Which do you, what do editors lift up? Uh What do 
different people at the top of the political pyramid? Who do they resonate with and what are their start, what are their fundamental? And then they've been at this a long time. That's the other piece, right? And so if somebody came of age, uh-huh. I mean, it doesn't like New York is a is a good example. Um, so the number of people that high in the political, you know, um, ecosystem come out of New York, but have been around for 30, 40 years. I mean, Biden's actually a fine example, right? And so back in that day, it white voters did matter more. And so you did have to have you know the 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 strategic significance of the voter of color block was less determinative because there were not as many people of color. So if you came of age in a politics where the most important thing was how do you win over these white voters in the middle, and then you rise to the top of the political pyramid, you still have that worldview. And it takes a lot to dislodge that worldview more so than be able to actually, um, so just some data points are not going to actually be able to do that, right? But I think that's part of what we saw in 2018. You see Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez displacing that type of uh, older, um, old school political leader, but she hasn't risen to the level where she's controlling the allocation of hundreds of millions of dollars. That's still folks who have that old worldview. Well, I, it seems to me like, and I, you can speak to why you wrote your book, but the the one thing that just was so crystal clear uh, when you came out with the book, Brown is the New White, was essentially like, it's almost like when the census comes out with its numbers and all policymakers who are trying to actually do their jobs, pay attention to those numbers because those numbers define the reality for whatever you know, whatever your policy inclinations are, that's like, you have to now look at that. And you essentially created a, a data-based uh, analysis of the electorate in a political context and say, this is the data you need to pay attention to. And don't, so like, it, it, I feel like it's, uh, there's unused memory and used memory, almost like, you know, you have on your, I'm not going to try to describe where it is on your RAM on your computer hard drive because I would fail, but like, it's like you're essentially calling out those decision makers and political operatives and others to like, this is data that needs to be incorporated. You may be only focused on this data that you're used to, but you need to at least bring this in because it changes, changes its picture. Right. But it's, it's not just, actually, as you're saying, that make me realize it's not just the, I I mean, much of public policy is not driven by, data right that's it's driven true. by unfortunately yes and um pre you know preconceptions yes right and, and and narrative and so you've got that whole that whole reality is that you know i don't think that people um fully appreciate this and also it's the question of the reality of the centrality which we're finally now seeing in this moment of you know black lives matter and racial reckoning Mm-hmm. of the role of race in this country. And so that's one of the insights I've had after rolling out the book is that, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was very pleased with the success that we had. But again, I thought the argument was, should you know, really should have even been more embraced and have more reverberations throughout the public opinion within the country at higher levels. Yeah. And our, one, of our, one of our consultants uh, who was helping us, Jamal Simmons, he does commentary for CBS um, now, he was pointing out that part of the issue is that most of the people who are controlling the 
platforms that influence large numbers of people are white, right? So Morning Joe, uh, uh, Meet the Press, Chuck Todd. Right. They are not comfortable talking about race issues. Uh-huh. So that was part of my, 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 my <coughs> uh-huh. the insight that Jamal had shared with us. And so the black reporters loved what we had to say. So Joy uh-huh. Reid had us on and she would yep. kind of, you know, lift up that analysis. But it wasn't something that Chuck Todd and Meet the Press was comfortable with. Uh-huh. And so they shied away, even though it's very data driven. But the fact yeah. that the data points you towards grappling with these racial issues made them very uncomfortable. How are we going to deal with that, Steve? <laughs> expand, expand the electorate, expand the, uh, well, anyway, yes. I no, think it is, about, it is about personnel, let's face it. There's a oh, lot yeah, about no, that, it was, you know, um, and, and when we talk about tech, we're talking about the same stuff. Exactly. I mean, not the, the, the tech companies, if you will, right? I mean, Renato Rosado was one of our professors back in the day. He, he said this phrase. So we were fighting around the um, trying to change the curriculum at Stanford and that he was saying you need to go and try to impact not the, what the committee that's looking at the curriculum does. You need to try to figure, impact who's on the committee. Uh-huh. And that he had sent, he had, he shared this phrase that stayed with me these 30 plus years His personnel is policy. Uh-huh. And that is the, I think the ultimate imperative is are you, who is in the positions that, that are influencing the access to these platforms, that this, the allocation of these resources and what is those, what are those people's connections to these communities and their approach and their understanding um, of this society. And so it's only when you ultimately change that, that then it will filter down to who gets, who else gets hired, what types of issues get lifted up and yeah. what types of issues don't. Yeah. And whether somebody feels comfortable talking about the data or not based on the fact that they, they don't have that lived experience or aren't willing to try to figure it out. Right. And they'll just ignore it. Right. And yeah. so, or it's, it's, again, it ties into this, um, um, narrative in terms of what's comfortable in terms about the country, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But there's a gargantuan racial wealth gap in this country. Yeah, let's talk about that. Average yeah, white family has about $150,000 in assets or net worth. Mm-hmm. Average black family has about 12,000. And so that is a, so kind of everything flows from that in yep. terms of your access to education, in terms yep. of the, all the, the things that you can actually avail yourselves and your families of to lift yourself up is all inhibited by that racial wealth gap. Right. Yep. So I was yep. in my book, it was like, cause this assumption, this narrative is that, well, it's kind of like maybe bad schools or opportunities and that, you know, right. it's kind of a culture that doesn't really encourage people to go to school or college. And that's why people are poor. And actually, who was it? Um, ben Carson, right. During his running in 2016, uh-huh. he's all, uh-huh. all trying to, you know, dump on poor people and black physicists. My, my mother grew up poor and she always made sure that we went to school and this and that. And I always wanted to ask him, why was your mother poor? Was it because she was lazy? Right. right. But no, it's like what I no. said in the book, I say, if you no. think about this country, there has never been a time when we have not had a racial wealth gap. Yeah. You had the, the, the you know, folks came over from England saw the fertile land, which they took from the Native Americans and brought Africans over to work that land to sell, sell the tobacco and right. ultimately cotton. 
And we've had a racial wealth gap ever since. Right. So people don't understand the roots of it. And which is why one of the things we're working for to lift up this bill in Congress, uh, House Resolution 40, to create a commission to actually study this and come out with recommendations. But now they don't understand the implications, what it would actually take to overcome it. Right. So I actually ran these numbers in my, in my um, book around looking at, so if you have $150,000 in assets versus 12000 yeah. If you, if both of those families put their money into the stock market, the $12,000 family's assets would have to perform twice as well for 28 years and they would still be behind, but then they would finally uh, be close. Uh, so this, yeah. but there's this notion about it's all fair now, that was all in the past, we should all be, but when you start out that 10 times behind, yeah. something more profound has to be done to rectify that inequality. And, and that's assuming that all the things that are set in place, whether it's the GI Bill or, you know, all the different federal housing acts were set up in a way that were designed to allow all working class and poor people to be able to be- benefit from it. And that we're, we've known, but there, there have been, you know, just definitive books and studies showing how racism straight up has was built into the DNA of these programs going back to the new deal. So, I mean, right. you take, Absolutely. you take even that theoretical and then you, you add on the, the actual of these policies and you know, you're, you're talking about building on quicksand versus building on like um, on granite. Right. And that's one thing I did not even really realize is the role of the uh, new deal and the, and the, and the GI bill in exacerbating this racial wealth gap. Right. So you have this, you know, Great Depression, New Deal, need to have this major legislation. And even in that moment, which is something we, I think we're kind of dealing with now, they've tried to exclude, you know, immigrants from the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, these relief packages today. They were like, well, we're going to exclude domestic workers mm-hmm. and farm workers from the New Deal. And so right. African-Americans and Latinos cut out of much of the largesse of the New Deal. And then similarly, the GI Bill. The GI Bill, which I did not even realize until I was doing this research, was essentially the government taking billions of dollars and handing it to white people. Go to college, buy a house, start a business. And it was, lar- it was largely excluding African-Americans. And so you elevated and created the, the middle class in this country, made it essentially white through government action. Yeah. And then that's the legacy that we're actually dealing with today. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so, so Steve, how can data help solve these complicated problems? Because yeah. I'm, I'm very interested uh, just hearing your perspective on, on sort of this retrospective analysis of we have the numbers, we can look at the past, we can see the mistakes that we've made. Yeah. Um, but another thing that I, I can't quite escape from as you've been talking is that, for example, not to go back to the, the 2016 election again, uh, but the data that you have and that you've shared with us presents a completely different picture of what happened. And that data exists no matter what, but it's not useful unless somebody actually asks the right questions yep. and actually goes in and says, I'm interested in these correlations. So given that, we have this huge problem. Is there, are there questions that we should be asking that we aren't asking and ways to use data that we just aren't doing right now because of time, because of resources, uh, because it's you know, maybe political reasons that 
where we could we could go in and actually make some concrete progress and in, in solve maybe not concrete progress but some progress in solving these issues yeah absolutely and i think at a couple of different levels and it's interesting that these are the things people are fighting against so it's like data facts and truth right so actually i didn't even know that um the you know so trump did this rally at uh, in tulsa right uh in the middle of june yeah. I did not know that much. I heard this podcast about the Black Wall Street and the absolute destruction of the you know the accumulated wealth and the the whole section of the whole town where black folks lived there. Yeah, this reporter who was reporting on this and it's on the Washington Post podcast, she said it was almost impossible to find that data and information. Is that they consciously wow. erased that? They kept it out of the library. They uh-huh. did not give access to the data. So that's what we're seeing now: is that there's this resistance to having uh, actual information to paint the correct picture. Mm-hmm. The uh, and we still haven't even won this fight. The extent to which we don't have a database that is racially specific, or really period, racially specific about police shootings. Yep. It's like how do you yeah. how do you justify that in a in a country that Google has every single key click that we've ever made, right? right? Especially yeah. right now. Yes. Yeah. So there's all of this this resistance to having data because it will paint this picture, and that's why they actually don't want to have the data um, captured. So you've got that, and then I think we're starting to see. I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful in terms of that. This is a level of racial reckoning that I've never seen in this country before. Uh-huh. You've got like. Walmart being these strong stands around Black Lives Matter. And so part of it is that capitalism is very um, nimble. And so if they're uh-huh. like, oh, well, the market is moving towards Black power. We need to like, upgrade our ads and whatnot. But there's more tension now. Yep. And so what are we doing in terms of shining a light and looking at how, but just take the hiring, right? Do we, are we, do we have, part of the question is, do we have the appetite to? But then are we going to commit to having these tech companies, all right. these different companies, reveal their data around who is it, who are they hiring and who are they not hiring? Because that's right. the other thing that depends how, what your perspective is. Everyone's like, well, we, you know, there's a pipeline problem and we can't actually find enough people of color. So it was a pipeline or a pool. Someone said it's not pipeline or a pool. It's a doorbell problem. The doorbell is broken. That we've been standing at the door pressing it and they're not Uh actually answering it. Uh But that becomes a data issue. And so if you look at this data, and particularly in the the demographic composition of the country at this point, and you get these companies basically created from scratch recently, in terms of Facebook and Google. And these are like created for one thing if you want to say, oh, this is a long legacy of decades and decades, and that's why our our company is the way it is. They built these companies from scratch. Yeah, and they're overwhelmingly white. So then it raises the question, if you look at data, you can say, oh, well, we couldn't find people of color, et cetera. Or you can flip that question and say, why are you hiring so many white people? Yeah, You're disproportionately hiring white people. And so yeah. then that would raise, a, that's a different proposition. That's a different solution yeah. than, oh, we have to do some more education stuff to help people of color interview better versus, no, you have a bias towards whites. And what uh-huh. are you doing about that? But that's not the public conversation is. But the data would, li- would lend itself and lead in that direction if people were willing to follow it there. Well, so here's, here's a thing that I'm working on on another front around climate. 
but all around this idea that data data does not uh, change the world, but you really need data to make the smartest decisions to do the best things for the most people. And one of the problems is data is behind firewalls, is not sometimes collected, but often is just they're intermediaries and people are not the people. And broadly speaking, a lot of institutions don't have access to it. So if you look at COVID, you know, this whole question about why don't people know you know, uh, the data, why isn't this publicly available? Why can't people access it so they can act on it? Why can't, you know, that it makes no sense to hide this, whether it's a government agency or a private, private company. And if you think about, for instance, climate, we're, we're thinking about the same thing. Now, when it comes to, for instance, like the, the question of, of, uh, police shootings and, and the, you know, the racial composition of those who are victims of it, or, you know, hirings or all these different things, which are, they are tracked, they are tracked internally, and they're just not put up and shared, right? And, and maybe there, somebody writes them on, uh, on, with pencil and paper, and they don't put them in a database, but they, these things are tracked. So the question of like, having an ongoing open accessible database that is like making the data public in a way that kind of changes the way people think about things. Like if you have one of those, um, you know, one of those clocks that tell you, you know, how many people have donated or how much time we have left or those things, which kind of like make the consumer, the citizen, the, the resident aware of those things also kind of holds the policymaker at least, at least they know that clock is out there and everybody can see it. You know, so like, for instance, right now we're benefiting from a massive, you know, street movement. Uh, people have right. been in the streets and are forcing policymakers to deal with this, some willingly, some not so willingly. But then the question is like sustainability. Well, it seems to me we need a, a dashboard for justice or something right. like that where the data gets up there. Right. Well, that actually raises a good point, right? Because what's that saying that um, sunlight is the best disinfectant, uh-huh. right? Is that so much of these practices that perpetuate the inequality take place behind closed doors and under, under the cover of darkness. So like, so everyone, everybody is now out there, you know, professing their love for black people. And, um, you know, I'm trying to go to like, pull up Amazon uh, video, just watch some kind of Nordic noir murder mystery and up to the top row. Here are all the black shows. And I'm like, they've been in your library this whole time. Only now you're pulling them up. Right. But um, everyone's making these, these commitments. And right. so, and there's a spectrum around which ones are good and which ones are just, you know, lip service, et cetera. Right, right. That's a data question. So that, yeah. that's an actual question I'm wondering about is yeah. who's tracking this? And then yeah. this day and age, you could throw up a Google Doc, yeah. list all the corporations, list what their commitments are, compare yeah. them to one another. Yeah. So it's the difference between, um, um, you know, Facebook saying, oh, we're going to give $10 million to, for black lives versus, you know, Michael Jordan was actually surprised Michael Jordan said this. Michael Jordan's like, I'm going to give $10 million a year for the next 10 years. Yeah. So then if you have those as publicly available and there's, I mean, it is out there publicly, it's just not aggregated right now. Right. So that's the solution that data can offer to this moment. 
Yeah. And that I think is actually desperately needed because this window is going to close. Yeah. The, moment, the, the, the momentum and the motivation is going to diminish. So we need to get clear on who's making what commitments and be able to lock that in and then track it because we've not had that level of commitment and or follow-up before. And it's not an extraordinarily complicated or expensive proposition to track it. Yeah. There's your, there's your blockchain tie-in, Ruben. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, so in terms of uh, this, this goal of equality, the goal of justice, do you think that data, and we're, we're collecting much more data now than we ever have in, in human history, do you think it's been a, a net positive or a net negative? Oh, I think it's a net positive. And I think that it's a net positive, again, that so much, what was it? Um, um, Ibram X. Kendi has this book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I uh -huh. think his quote is, um, I'm not gonna do it justice, but it's, it's, it's the law on the lines of denial is the essence of racism. Uh -huh. And that people are able to deny and excuse, et cetera. And so that's where like, you're trying to figure, I've been trying to like, grapple with, is that thing, thing today, today's New York Times, I think they're actually saying that this may be the largest movement in the history of this country. Yes. Of all yeah, of these different yeah. protests and whatnot. Something and like, like 28 well, million people in the streets, something like that. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I'm like, well, why now? Uh -huh. Right. I mean, what, what's different about this protest? Right. I mean, what I was, you know, I talked about in our podcast, is I don't you know, I probably remember, you know, Mike, back in the 1985, Melvin Trust, young black yeah. guy was killed in San Jose. And so this has been going on for a long time in terms yeah. of the yeah. um, extent to which people are out there. But we didn't have uh, cell phone cameras. Yes. We didn't have Facebook Live. Right. So this 17-year-old girl took this video of George Floyd being murdered, yeah. put it on her Facebook page. Yeah. And that is what has precipitated all of this protest and all of this change all over the country. Yeah. So certainly in terms of the technological revolution, yeah. it's been, and it's fascinating, just the comparative anecdote. I yeah. working on this piece comparing to 1965. Mm. So Bloody Sunday, which mm. led to the Voting Rights March mm. um, in Alabama. The, you know, John Lewis, Dr. King tried to march over this bridge. They were attacked on police, billy clubs mm -hmm. and uh, tear gas. So, so what happened is they, the reporters were there and recording yeah. this, 1965. The reporters, this was in uh, Selma, drove the film to Atlanta, put it on an airplane, flew it up to New York, and then in New York, they interrupted wow. the national television. You know, yeah. but that's the, which, that's yeah. a long, yeah. cell phone camera and Facebook Live yeah. is a long <laughs> way from that. Yeah. But both of them captured the attention of the nation because they yeah. visualized it and dramatized it. Yeah. So from a technological standpoint, I absolutely think that it's been, uh, been helpful. The data exists, but it has not been, and it's been interesting as a lot of these tech companies have resisted revealing their data about yes. hiring over the past you know, decade and whatnot. So hopefully now this moment will push them to change those practices. And so I think that it certainly creates the conditions to do something more significant than has happened in the past because we do have all of this data. Well, you're almost calling for some kinds of data should actually be, there should be also a tag public interest. That is, you don't get to keep this private. 
and right. you don't get to keep this. There, there's a, a overwhelming public interest in which you might anonymize it, but you need to share the uh, what the data you're capturing because it, it it impacts society. There's a public interest that is implicated here. Um, right, and they uh, certainly you know circling back to yeah. the role of tech as well as on the, on this election front. Right, is that yeah. it's so it was. And even here in liberal California, we had to fight and we lost the fight the first year and come back next year to actually get California to create um, online voter registration uh-huh. and same day uh, voter uh, participation. And then the, I remember the secretary of state at that time called me to tell me that, well, she's, I don't I can't match the voter file to the DMV list because that's a separate branch of government, whereas they're just two big databases. And so why exactly. can't you contact everyone who registers, who, who signs up for an auto license yeah. to then actually have them be registered? Yeah. So there's so much we could do. We have the, the data and the capacity if there were the, yeah. mo- the will and the motivation. Where it's like, oh, yeah. well, you're, it's going to be you know, all this fraud and whatnot. You can go to any store in the country right. and show your credit card. And they're, right. they're reasonably confident you are who you say you are when you show right. up with your credit card. So why right. can't you do that at the voting booth? And, and, and by the time you've walked out of the store, you got a text, they detect fraud, and they'll right. put a stop on it. I mean, these things have been solved for exactly pretty pretty damn well. And, and why not being able to do that for something yeah, that's and so I fundamental just, that's as, as election? Is that, as I think about, look, a friend of mine, um, Deepak Bhargava has talked a lot about, he has this piece in the nation around what, what progressives need to do and heading uh-huh. into 2021 and beyond. Uh-huh. It really has to do with, because we are in this battle in that yeah. the, I argue that the descendants of the Confederacy have never surrendered. They are yeah. continuing to fight this fight around, is this, is this a multiracial country? Is this a white yeah. nationalist country? Yeah. So we have to actually have a level of uh, consolidation of power in terms of protecting the democracy that we have so that it can't be undermined. And so that does get at things like reforms around making democracy more uh, expansive and available. And so things like voter registration, voter participation, utilizing the full range of technological capacity that exists now to make, because part of the way that the, the resistance to progress occurs is they try to disenfranchise people and suppress the vote. And so there's plenty of technology now that should make voting much more. And then the tech companies should be able to step forward. Google right. and Apple should say, yeah, no, I'm gonna, we're going to figure it out and we're going to provide solutions to make sure that every single person in this country can vote. Right. If we wanted to, we certainly have the technology to be able to do that. Right. And I think that's one of the things that you hear on the Hill or wherever else when you get uh, Zuck or these other folks up there is like, well, we're just so overwhelmed with terabytes of data every day. It's hard to keep out the bad. But they know exactly, precisely, and with great uh, impact how to target for their ads, for their yeah. products, for their services yeah. uh, with terabytes of data deployed. And so it's like it would not be it's within their capabilities oh, right now to do this. Yeah. It's not even a question. You know, On this isn't about how like. why is this ad how did this ad pop up in my facebook feed (laughs) i don't want to tell you what kind of ads show up right (laughs) Right. i'm not that old (laughs) don't get me started on that (laughs) well steve this has been fantastic conversation um there's a lot more we can go into 
Uh, I want to want my views on blockchain and cryptocurrency. I really do. And that's where we're going to have to have set up a whole nother follow up. <laughs> it's a new coin. We'll talk about that later. We're teasing that show. Um, yeah, like I said, it's, you know, we're at an absolutely historic moment, but frankly, also a historic movement. And I think that what we're, what we're seeing and living in is a time where we also have a historic change in terms of data and technology. And I think to underscore your point, um, these are tremendously powerful tools. We've seen them used for, in some cases, ill, certainly for who knows what reason. Let's yeah. see them used for good. You know, and like let let both the data, the collection of the data, and the deployment of it. You know, we have these things in our hands, which are supercomputers, which do so much, and yet, you know, it's like um, let's turn them into power, you know, so society can like we can rise up and and deal with these things. Yeah, and I I will leave you then with the the full circle story from the Stanford technology piece. So Mike and I are involved in the Free South African movement. And uh, I forget, 1985, marched down to uh, White Plaza from the president's office. And then this like scraggly haired, you know, grad student comes running up to me and he's like, 1985, and he's like, we can get the word out all over the country through this thing called the internet. And I'm like, get this guy away from me. Who is this person here? So we've come a long way. The internet, yes. With that, Steve, well, so it's been great. Yeah, but, just before we end, Steve, if you uh, yeah. have a quick little elevator pitch for your podcast, uh, I, yes, I know we mentioned it at yes. the beginning, but just uh, just a little more to something to to hook people in. Yeah, Definitely. appreciate that. It's a uh, democracy in color with Steve Phillips, a color conscious podcast about politics. So we're looking at current events, political developments with a, a color conscious lens, and not trying to to uh, ignore that. And so we've had a range of great guests. We've had. Um, Stacey Abrams was one of our, was our first guest. We just had Elizabeth Warren was on recently. Um, and so we look at U.S. politics from the standpoint of this being a multiracial country and um, how to interpret and understand what's going on. Awesome. Fantastic. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you. Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. Get your thoughts and feedback about the issues raised in the podcast, and your ideas on where we should go next. Our Data is a podcast brought to you by the Blockchain Group and the Tech for Good project of Stanford's Codex Center for Legal Informatics. Thanks to the co-chairs of the Codex Blockchain Group, Tony Lai and Kushagra Srivastava, and Codex Executive Director, Roland Vogel. And special thanks to our producer, co-host, and jack-of-every-trade, Ruben Youngbaum. I'm Michael Schmitz. Michael Schmitz.